Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to another episode of the Sales Drop-In Podcast. We're back with a, a guest. Perhaps we were conscious that you were bored of just myself and Basu rambling. So we've actually brought on board here a special somebody for our, our first episode with a guest. Today's guest is Dino. Dino is currently going through some super, super exciting things, which I'll leave him to share about. But in essence, he's running a, a, a company which is sold into some of the most prestigious brands that, that you've heard of, maybe prestigious brands that you've always wanted to save your money and go and shop at. I know I certainly remember spending a lot of time saving to, to go and blow some money in these in these stores. So Dino, how's, how's the day been? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's been a, as I said to you before, it's been a, it's been a long a day. I have to go uh, abroad to finalize that exciting news that I discussed with you that you introed a little bit uh, at the start of your um, uh, conversation. And uh, yeah, so exciting things to come. Uh, a couple of months of change and iteration and inflection really in, in this business, but uh, it's been an interesting journey thus far. And I'm looking forward to sharing some of my insights and experience with you today. Awesome. I guess, um, Dino, do you want to give a bit of an intro on your business, um, what you got into it, what the exciting news is, because it is, it's one of the goals of most people in life, you know? Yeah, sure. So basically in 2014, um, uh, we, uh, myself and two of my co-founders, we basically had the opportunity to uh, sign an exclusive uh, distribution agreement with a very well-known Swiss skincare line. Uh, from Geneva, the Geneva part of Switzerland into the UK. Uh, the brand was already very well known. And then in the ensuing uh, years, so between 2014 to today, uh, we, we fleshed out this uh, individual brand into a portfolio of brands and we built a B2B marketplace. So we built an exclusive uh, B2B marketplace uh, where we basically supplied the, we have relationships, so we built up relationships with the premium uh, top-line retailers in the UK and then extending into Europe and actually internationally now. So all the retailers from, from stores like Waitrose to Harrods, Selfridges, Whole Foods, Space and K. Some of you may know some of these more boutique beauty retailers, um, uh, but most of them are well-known. So Harrods, Selfridges, Whole Foods, Waitrose, Space and K, Harvey Nichols, all these types of stores. And then on the other side, we basically procured these interesting brands in FMCG categories. So FMCG is fast moving consumer goods. And we focused more on the luxury segment of that area. So uh, perfumery brands, skincare brands, uh, dental care brands, wellness brands. And our objective from there was to build a marketplace that we could act as a facilitator between these purchases, these stores, that would buy the products and put them on their shelves and, and this exciting portfolio of brands to service them. And we built our business in the intermediary between those two spaces. So we acted within the supply chain of the luxury retail industry in the UK. Um, we started in 2014 and uh, it's been, it's, we only really started with the objective of bringing the Swiss skincare line to the UK, but every year since it's been iteration. So uh, adding more brands, adding more stores, uh, pivoting a little bit to a B2C model into the, into the pandemic, which is a direct-to-consumer model, our website. Um, and it's just been a, it's been a process of figuring out as we go. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the couple of liner I can give you. Amazing. And so what would you, do you want to announce the amazing news that you're currently working yeah, on? Yeah, of course. So we're going through an exit now, which is, which is it's, it's, it's kind of scary. It's, it's exciting because it's coming to a close and we're going to get, uh, a reward obviously at the end of it but it's also very 
I, I've spoken to you, Vasu, about this. It's kind of, it's, it's a little bit nerve wracking as well, because it's something that for myself, I've built my identity on since 2014, since I graduated. And it's a very, it's a little bit of a scary thing to say that now I'm going to uh, exit the many things that I was, I built my identity upon those relationships, the team that I had, the industry, and now thinking to start all over again. Obviously, I'm starting off from a very good position because of this experience that I've had, but it's, 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 it's the inflection point. So it's going to be a wonderful thing once it's done. Uh, but at the same time, I'm looking forward to the next steps and I'm just opening opening my doors to see what the universe brings me at this stage. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a quarter, a few months of inflection, excitement and change. So obviously it's exciting, but there's also some trepidation that goes along with that as well. That's awesome. So I have a, I have a personal question looking doing my research. I see that we literally hopped off the porch, AK went straight from university into doing our own things. The, I guess the prototypical entrepreneur journey. I, I'd love to maybe walk through, how we perhaps have mentally gone through the preparation from being a, an undergrad to being a, a company founder, a CEO in such a perhaps a short period of time or what enticed us to make that very interesting? Because why I asked is many people have this dream, but the yeah, actual sure. dream and execution are very different and the dream and execution and execution to a level of success is also a completely different factor. Yeah, so it's, you know, there's no, for me, it wasn't really, it wasn't, it wasn't a deliberate, uh, path in the sand really so I basically I can tell you the story so my last year of university I like I'd made that I went to Warwick University which is kind of then as Warwick PLC right so a lot of people that go to Warwick go into investment banking or management consultancy or things like this and I was on the same sort of path so in my last two years I was doing the internships I did a summer internship in the Royal Bank of Scotland in investment banking I was going to I was given my job offer in the final year and then something uh, that I didn't expect to happen happened in my final year, which was in the Christmas time of my final year, uh, my co-founder, who's actually my cousin, he came to me and said that, look, there's this opportunity of this brand that I know, and they're a family-owned company that I, he knows through his own private network. And they were looking to, they were 30 years in business, so they were a, a third-generation family-owned brand. The brand was already very well known, and he had a personal relationship with the founder. And his uh, conversation was that, look, these guys are desperate to bring their brand into the UK. So they would love to, they were available through their various networks in China, in Russia, in Switzerland was the biggest, the domestic market and in the United States, but they wanted to get into the UK. And they'd had some issues about this in the past. So in, it was Christmas time of my last year and we decided to very, very, uh, just it was exciting process to sit down, make a pitch deck, um, and he said, he approached me and said, that, look, is there something we can do with this? And maybe this is a little project we can do to see how it goes. And we basically made the pitch tech, the presentation, built a financial model. Um, and we went to Switzerland in that Christmas time. And we made the proposal to this company that, look, if you give us a contract to import your goods into the UK, we can promise that in the ensuing time, we will do X, Y, and Z. And we really did it more for, as, a, as experience really than expecting that anything would come from it. But funny enough, I think um, something clicked with them. I think they'd been really burnt in the past with experience from uh, the large UK companies. And they gave us an opportunity, the Swiss company. Um, and they said that, look, we'll give you a, a six month trial period and let's see what you can do in terms of building up a company, building up a set of processes in terms of opening business for us in the UK. And if at the end of those six months, we decide to, 
um, you can hit our metrics or the targets that we've set you, we'll give you a long-term contract and you can start business with us in the UK. So over the last two terms at university, I was working on this with my cousin whilst going through all finals and all those sort of things. And we managed to build up a good, um, uh, a good uh, traction. And the reason for that is something that we couldn't have prepared for. And, and the reason basically is that the brand that we started working with was actually very well known in the UK in terms of the sub community of people that are very enthusiastic about skincare. And the reason is because London is such an international city and those uh, high net worth individuals, the brand is very is super premium, right? So the average retail product for a skincare line in this line was about 300, 400 pounds. And because London is such an international city, we managed to get pick up from stores quite quickly. We came to the end of my, it was about, it was about June time, May, June time. And then I had a decision to make because these guys were asking us, let's go ahead. And I had my job offer on one side. And the, it was just, it was a freak thing that I decided over the course of a week, I think I went away and I said, look, I'm, we're just going to run with it. Let's do this. So the the experience was that was the that was the inception experience and we we the fact the company the name of the company is Swiss Cell UK because the first brand the Cell Cosmet and Cellman brand was um, that was a shelf company that we uh, tr that we were given by that company to to act as the base of operations for the UK. Then what happened? I'm sorry if I'm going on, but I'm just telling you the full story. Um, oh, of course. But then, then what happened is basically we realized we had a conduit because of our supply chain business with this company, we suddenly had a vehicle to attract other brands that were looking that were in the same position, right? So for many other international brands that have a good domestic presence in their own market, whether it's the US, Italy, uh, France, Russia, London is the, a very attractive second market because it's such an international city. So we realized suddenly we had built up a conduit to import other brands into the UK. And then, um, from being a distributor of a single brand, we became a B2B marketplace. We built up more relationships, more stores and more retailers, and we just built the business from then. And it was really, um, I can tell, I can, I can ask, I can say that was, if you do this, you're likely to find yourself in that position. But ours was, there was a lot of luck involved and it was a lot of just, just winging it almost like making, making a one step forward and making another step forward and just solving the problems as they, as they went. And unfortunate for us, uh, we had a great first brand and a great first company to work with because we were able to leverage that first relationship into the next few. And then from there, the ball started to roll. It's, sure. it's, always, it's always so interesting when it comes to like um, pivoting and just kind of going with the flow and luck. I always think every good founder that ends up exiting or goes down that, that holy path, should we say, always says the same thing. It was 90% luck, but... I always find that it's usually the most hardworking ones that say that. Um, uh, and hey, man, I, I think it's testament to, to your journey as well. But I would say just one, one thing to add is that we were very lucky in terms of initially, especially I can say this very much, especially in the first two years, is that we had amalgamation of people together. Like a, our team just came together so seamlessly at the beginning. And there was so much enthusiasm there at the beginning that all of us were really on the same path. And it's it, that makes that in itself. Once you have a really good community of people that you're working with at a startup, that kind of fuels your journey at the beginning, and that gave us a lot of energy and strength at the beginning as well. So, so you kind of alluded to it on the beginning side of things too, in terms of you know you had the first uh, the first brand that you're working with, um, and you, you'd started selling that in, and the high street re retailers responded quite well. What was that first initial approach towards selling? What was that like? Um, was there a lot of pivoting, like 
talk us yeah, through that first conversation. We How didn't you start. We, we were the salespeople. Yeah, we were the salespeople initially. And this is it was, the interesting thing about this is this is something that the product, like, you know, you say that like the, the traditional, and I think it's right, is that you, you sell something you're passionate about or that you know very well. In our situation, we were selling, like we were, like I was just out of university. My cousin was in his mid twenties and our other partner was just in his early thirties and all guys initially, right? And we were selling, like we were selling premium skincare for ladies. So there wasn't a sense that we knew exactly the, the key selling points of how to sell this. And initially what we did wrongly is that we started our training from the suppliers was all about product ingredients and about the efficacy of products and why the why a consumer should buy this as opposed to something else. And um, we realized very quickly in the initial stages that look, we that's not really our thing, right? Like we could hire people to go into the details about why this product is better than everything else. For us, it was about, we had to understand that we were selling to retailers, right? So our, our, our value proposition to retailers was, we had to really make it financially based in terms of, forgetting about what the product itself is, but focusing really about the profit and the revenue generation opportunity for the retailers that we were talking to. And that initial phase, there was a lot of learning around that, that look, we're not selling something that is, um, is, is cheap, first of all. It's not like an easy decision to buy something because our initial purchasing orders back in the day were minimum 10,000 pounds, right? And so for that reason, we had to educate ourselves, first of all, as to who we were planning to sell to, like who was our target market and then understanding what our strengths were. So our strengths from the beginning was to sell to the, the, the commercial team, right? To a door, we used to call them doors. So the B2B businesses. And then as the company grew was to fill out the rest of our sales team uh, with, 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 um, with skincare practitioners in this case, right? So it was focusing on strengths and really understanding who we were selling to. So I guess from, from that, I took that, Initially, we made the mistake of trying to, to sell basically based upon the features and benefits, which is a, a mistake that many salespeople do. And really, our, our main learning point was, was taking a step back, identifying what our customer personas were, identifying like what they wanted from the deal to some degree, wearing their hat to actually educate ourselves on how best to sell to them. And from that small, arguably quite substantial change is where we actually saw the first 10K order coming through. I want to maybe... Touch on on how that felt to close that first deal. I remember the first deal I closed. Unfortunately, it wasn't it wasn't quite a ten k deal. <laughs> Probably maybe one or so thousand. How did it feel to close that first ten k deal for the order? Yeah, in those initial stages, everything is really exciting. That the first the first um, door we opened was probably I think I still remember. It. There's a pharmacy in Mayfair. It's like quite a traditional pharmacy called Audley Pharmacy. And uh, because of the value of these initial products, even that order was sizably. It was a big order. Um, but yeah, it's exhilarating, right? Because at that point, you know, there's, there's a thing that I think at that point, then we realized we had a business to run because as soon as, once you start getting orders, once you start getting some positive cash flow, then you're right, then you've got something to work with, you know, and then there's a little bit of a, um, everyone has a sunk cost into the business because you realize things are going to go. So I think a lot of it was, you know, if I'm being honest, there wasn't even trepidation in those days in terms of like, am I, have I made the right choice or not? It was, it was, this was a validation. Like the, the, those initial sales were just the validation that, oh, look, I've actually made the right choice in doing this and taking the step. You maybe touch upon like the mental component, right? So I'm a big advocate that majority of sales is, is more mental than anything. And, you know, confidence is probably a large part in any sales success, right? It's, it's easy to close deals when, you, when you're in a confidence streak and 
it's so much more harder for you to close deals when you're just not really feeling yourself to speak quite candidly. Could you walk us through maybe how that first deal changed and maybe looking back, we saw our confidence switch up a little bit. We saw our swagger change. And as a result of closing that first deal, we maybe had this you know, beginner's mind where oh, this, this is easier than I thought it was and how important confidence played and allow us to maybe sell to the next company, hopefully for a, of a, yeah. of a larger size. I, I can say that, you know, going back to something that I previously said is that I can, I, confidence is obviously a massive part, but it's also, you have to take your learnings, I think, from every experience. So I can tell you that we spent too much time in those initial stages trying to sell to people that were never going to be in a position to buy. As I mentioned, this uh, product that we started with was a very, very specific price range, right? And so the, the, the numbers of people that we could sell this product to were limited in number. And I think more than the confidence was always there in those initial stages. We were very, as I mentioned, the team was super proactive. Like we were very hungry and enthusiastic to get after it. But I think what was a sensible shift from that point was that, look, that's when we started thinking about the business less as uh, the distributor as a single of a single brand and more of a B2B marketplace. Because then we realized that, look, if, if we've got a door that we want to get into, let's start to tier our offering. So let's have different offer, let's have different products that we can offer to sell into doors. Because, because then we were able to be more um, creative with what we would offer clients, right? So we could have different types of packages, different types of products. And once we formed a relation, I, I don't know if that makes sense, what I just said. It allowed us to develop different tiers of offerings, basically. So yeah, confidence is a massive thing. But I think one thing in those initial phases is that almost don't be too confident. Like be confident, but at the same time, take your learnings from the nose, right? Um, so that's what I would say. Maybe I'm not being clear with that. Maybe you can, if you want to ask me a follow-up question. No, no, oh, I, I, I agree. It was beautiful. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you, ha especially with selling, you have to know what doesn't work before you know what does work. Um, I think false positives can lead you down a bit of a path where you kind of end up doing the wrong thing, but getting okay-ish results and kind of getting complacent with it. So I, I fully agree. You have to take the learnings from every single note and improve upon it for the next one. If that's your targeting the wrong people or if that's you're selling the wrong way um but on that in terms of let's say like the big fish the so-called big fish that you spoke with how did you how did you get the first one like so the first i can tell you that we the towards the end of our like towards like uh, well throughout harrods was our biggest store right but this particular first brand and that was exactly as i was saying like we tried many many times initially to get that as a pure sales play right now that door, in terms of our big, big our biggest uh, flow of business with them, only really started to open up, and I can in a different context, right? What happened is we basically got a different brand, which is a much lower price brand. It's also super premium in its category. It's a dental care brand from New Orleans in the United States, but we realized that Harrods were looking to import this brand for a long time, and they were wanting to stock it for a long time. How did you find They've that never out? Had... Sorry. How did you find that out? I, so we, I knew one of the buyers, right? So I okay. knew one of the buyers and then in the conversations that we had with them, this came up and then I heard that, look, they're trying to look to bring this brand in. And um, we'd been trying with our premium skincare line to get the brand in for a good period, like a year, six months to a year and nothing was working. And so what we did is we actually started, we built a, a relationship with this, this dental care brand from the US. We imported into the UK, made it one of our portfolio brands and as soon as we presented that brand to Harrods, it sold in completely. Then what happens, and this is one thing that was, was we understood this as, as we went along, right? Is once we started to form a relationship with a door, with a, with a retailer, right? Even if it, was, if it was with one of our products, right? 
the stronger the relationship became, the much easier it was to, to sell further things in later, right? So although they'd said no to our, our big offerings, right, our high uh, financial offerings where we would generate the most cash for in the initial phases, what we did is we gave them something that they really wanted. We built a relationship with them and then we sold everything else afterwards, even though they'd said no before, because at that point they had confidence in us as a vendor, right? Because you have to understand in this situation, it's a different type of selling because it's not so much that we're selling and then the, the deed is done, right? We, as, 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 a, as a supply chain vendor, our goal is for them to sell. We have to sell inventory to them and then they have to have confidence that we're going to help them sell to their consumers, right? So once we were able to prove that concept that we're going to help them do that, and also more, more, than, more than anything, the brands that we're going to sell to them are going to be able to be sold through to their final consumer and they have confidence in us as a company, we were able to build a relationship and then they took everything. So it happened in a very awkward way, right? We, it wasn't something that we persisted, persisted, it came through. We, this, is what I this is what I was going back to saying before about being smarter about the way we sold. We found a different avenue to open up a small business relationship. We proved ourselves there and we built a rapport and then one, it wasn't long before they took everything on board. So I don't know if again, I'm being clear, but um, that's, the, that's what happened. I like it. So I guess, how did this approach become scalable? In terms of the... In, in terms of starting off by trying to build relationships with or rapports with, with, with these doors, understanding what their pain points were, perhaps added on perhaps a multi-tiered offering. How do we go from selling to, to Harrods to selling to Selfridges or was it exactly the same play? So uh, one thing that happens in that industry, right, in terms of categories, so if you look at premium skincare, is that word gets around, right? So once you're in those top tier uh, retailers, the conversation becomes iteratively easier every time, right? And then you knock one down, it's so much easier. Yeah, yeah, it 100% does because you leverage what you have before. And in this situation, right, that we knocked off the biggest uh, door straight away, right? That was the first relationship we built. And then from there, everything became easier. And then after that, what we started to doing is we just, we just, we, we, we basically added to our team, our headcount increased, and we got, and we, and we divided our, our sales managers into three different categories. So we had, um, we had, um, we had trainers, basically it was education based. We had developers whose base, whose, whose responsibility was to nurture and build account that they were working on. And then the most important one was the hunters, right? So these were the ones that whose, op, whose whole uh, business was based on that initial sell, breaking down that initial barrier. We trained them, we incentivized them. We picked really good people that really vibe with the project range that we had, that were enthusiastic about the company and we paid them well. And then from there, we, they already had pre-existing networks as well. So they'd been in the industry for some time. They also had their own networks of, of reputation rapport with these clients. And that became, that helped us really, really go from step one, step two, step three. And then another thing is in terms of scaling was really being important and really being uh, very, very uh, careful about which products and brands we brought on board, right? So really our job, our job more than anything was to present the doors or present whoever we, was in front of us with the best quality products, something that they felt that they could guarantee would sell to their final consumer. So really more of our sales process was less about the actual conversation and more about scouting the things that we had done our research before that, okay, these guys are looking for, it fits into what they consider to be an opportunity now, and it fits into a space that maybe they're not servicing particularly well right now. So a lot of that sales process was the research behind 
in terms of not in terms of what what are people looking for where can we find it and where can we look internationally for that particular uh, offering I want to maybe spend some time on, on the hunters so why i think hunters is, is interesting is most people when they first go into sales just based upon how companies work they tend to give people the, the cold the dead list of accounts that nobody's spoken to and god knows how much and just as a result you have to just become a, a hunter to generate your your first your first piece of food i'd love to maybe spend some time on maybe the persona types or the characteristics that we saw made a good hunter and if if and how we match went on to develop and nurture these individuals yeah so that was that's the, as as i said to you like we in the end we were dividing our roles the sales roles between these three archetypes so the hunter the developer and the trainer initially what we did try and do and there was many reasons for this is we would try to um we would try to amalgamate uh, one person for each of those roles but as you said the personality types that you require are different right so in terms of the personality the types for the hunter that were really um, that really seemed to work through experience were uh, everything that you'd experience from that everything that you'd kind of assume right so they were maybe more uh, they were maybe more uh, aggressive in their stance they were definitely asking for raises and, and high commissions more than everyone else um, I have to be honest their churn was probably slightly higher as well because they were always looking for the next opportunity, but that didn't necessarily matter to us because we we were very, very um, uh, forthcoming in terms of we offered very great packages and things like this, but um, the, the personality type was more aggressive and less nurturing than I would say the developers and the trainers because the developers and the trainers were incentivized and their, their, uh, their universe in our company was based on nurturing the existing accounts, right? So building the business from the existing accounts. The hunter's only objective was to open new business. So I would say um, more aggressive, more demanding from the team, which could be sometimes a, a balance to strike in terms of HR management. Um, but they were res results orientated and they were very metric orientated as well. So we had to make sure that our metrics were very clear in terms of um, what their targets were, uh, where they would be in excess of their targets and what they would get per, uh, per incremental uh, uh, target, for example. So, yeah, so they were different personality types. We ever get cases where hunters became nurturers and why I ask that is, well, in my professional career, I've gone from being a, a hunter <laughs> to a nurturer right now and I'm not necessarily sure. Life. 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 